Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, we are back in the Detroit is Different podcast studios, and everything is rolling, 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 as I have someone in full effect that definitely has some different roots to helping all types of people, definitely Detroiters, and she's also helped herself to love in Detroit. How are you doing, Attorney Knox? I'm doing great. How are you today? Everything is well. Everything is well. So I introduced you, obviously, by trade, but Detroit, what, what's, uh, what's your ties to Detroit? So I was born in Detroit at mm-hmm. Sinai Hospital. Okay. Um, my nickname is Carol because they brought me out in a Christmas stocking. So I didn't know my real name was a male till I was nine. I lived on the east side of Detroit on Goddard uh, off of Eight Mile. Mm. And then when I was about five years old, um, my great grandmother had passed and my grandmother and my mom and I moved to Pontiac. Hmm. However, my roots are still Detroit roots. And for high school, I went to Cast Tech. All right. So that is a journey. Let's talk a little bit about growing up on the east side uh, up till nine. What do you remember? about that neighborhood no it was five but i was it was five but my mom still had friends and so summertime you know i'd go over there pray with my friends and go see everybody in the neighborhood um and we were actually trying to move back when i was about 16 Mm -hmm. but my mom was messing with a dope boy and i was like i'm not going back there like his ex-wife firebombed his house like real crazy uh, real crazy very yeah uh, interesting story that (laughs) probably needs to be told through your mother absolutely she's a character but she's my favorite character and i love her dearly um so i grew up between kind of two houses in a way and what i remember about the east side was we had a nice neighborhood there was a lady with a daycare um her name was gail and she Mm -hmm. used to watch me as a little girl Mm -hmm. my mom had a best friend uh who lived next door I'm pretty sure her name was, I won't say her name, but I think it was Deborah, but she Mm -hmm. passed. And we were at her house the night she got stabbed. Wow. And I was probably like four years old, but I remembered it vividly because I kept telling my mom I wanted to go home, but I would love to go over her house because she had the box, right? She had Mm -hmm. the cable and we would watch videos. So Mm -hmm. I would love to watch music videos. And her daughter was there and her stepson, and they were really, you know, they were like teenagers, but they were you know, family. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kept begging my mom to leave that night. Like, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. I'm tired. You know, I was mm-hmm. probably flailing on the floor, you know, having a temper tantrum. Like, we got to go. Mm-hmm. And then the morning we found out that she was gone. But mm-hmm. outside of that, there was the neighborhood was pretty easy. It was pretty quiet to the the left of our house or no, to the right of me. There was a neighbor named Ben. Shout out to Ben Carr. He's still Mm -hmm. my Facebook friend. Um, Him and his sister and I and his little brother, Xavier, we would all play together. And my uncle, like, took us to Cedar Point as kids. So, I mean, that was my neighborhood. I loved it. Okay. So you juxtaposed that with Pontiac. What was Pontiac like and what neighborhood in Pontiac? I live on the south side in Pontiac, grew up there and actually back there now. Um, Pontiac was interesting because we live on the old side. So it was a lot of um, 
older black people who had settled from the South and worked mm -hmm. in the plant at General Motors truck and bus mm -hmm. before they tore it down and built this like speedway thing um, at the old plant site. And I still love the view. Like we look out every morning and we look at a golf course, even though there's a fence and, you know, a, a net to keep golf balls from hitting the neighbor's cars. We look out a, a beautiful golf course. They ended up putting condos on the golf course, but it used to be just an unadulterated golf course in the lake. But across from the lake, when I was like five, I had cousins that lived in the projects. Mm -hmm. So it's my house, it's Harrison Street, it's the golf course, the lake, and then the projects were sitting on the lake, mm -hmm. which is crazy, right? Um, which is housing, you know, we didn't understand anything back then, I guess, or we did, but about concentrated poverty and putting a big group of people who have no opportunities or very few opportunities in one place. And of course that's gonna breed crime and um, just unrest, but they eventually cleared that site out. They're still waiting to develop it, but I'm starting to see the, the changes and the gentrification. Mm. It'll be about five to 10 years, but it's trickling in. Mm. So this is all happening, uh, I usually also ask the roots, uh, how long was your family here in Detroit? Do they come from the South or uh, where do the roots of your family come from? So I'm pretty sure that the roots come from Southern Illinois. At least that's what my grandmother tells me. Okay. Um, I'm not sure where my grandfather, oh, my grandfather's people, I am sure because we went there. Um, my grandfather's people are from Mississippi. Whereabouts? I want to say either McGee, I think McGee. Mm-hmm. Um, so somewhere where I went to a house with a tin roof on it. Okay. In my twenties. So And that's unique because like a lot of the roots in Detroit kind of come from, you know, further east, you know, the Alabama, the Georgia, the Florida. Mississippi is kind of like that fault line where a lot of people did go to Illinois and like Chicago, like further west. So you look at like Arkansas and Louisiana, those people went to Texas and then made their way to California or came up to Chicago or St. Louis. But you said Southern Illinois and Southern Illinois has its own culture. Do you, have you visited? Have you been there? No, not since I was a, a very young child, maybe like three or four again. Um, I remember we took a train ride because somebody had passed. Mm -hmm. We went for, on, for a funeral, but we've never been back. And my grandmother um, grew up in a town called Metropolis. Mm -hmm. um, in Southern Illinois. Um, but what I remember of it, it just doesn't sound like anywhere I'd ever want to visit. Um, you know, she had a hard childhood growing up. And so I knew that. Um, she, and there were times when it was just me and my grandmother and she did her very best to take great care of me. But she had a hard childhood. And there were times where she wasn't with her mom and her aunt raised her. And um, she talks to me about how she was a little kid on this farmland and used to get into a ton of trouble, mm -hmm. <laughs> including like going to somebody's farm, thinking that there was a pile of sugar when it was really salt mm. and only almost getting chased down by like a bull. So, mm. yeah, that's that's uh, that is definitely an experience that most people do not want to go through bull chased. No, you know, bull chase is not the dig. Now, Cast Tech, why Cast Tech? Well, to be honest, I didn't realize the blessing of Cast that had been bestowed <laughs> upon me. Um, I went to private schools um, growing up. Um, my mom 
she was a great single mom and she made sure that I really never had to interact at a public school. I think at like nine, I was like, I'm not gonna survive there. You mm -hmm. know, I just was astute and I didn't know anything but private school. So mm -hmm. I didn't want to ever leave that environment. But I did actually, before we go to Cass, I went to East Bethlehem Lutheran on the east side of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I met a couple people who I later ran into at Cass Tech. So um, I was going to private school and I was at Marist Academy in eighth grade. It was predominantly Caucasian. And I looked around and I said, mom, I'm not going to have a prom date. There's only one guy that likes me in the school. You know, he's this adorable little white kid, but like, that's not the look. And mm. I want to be around my own people. And I really was following in my uncle's footsteps. He went to Cass. He was, he's an engineer. He went to GMI. He went to U of M, went to Northwestern. So I said, if it's good enough for Uncle John to go to Cass, I'm going to go to Cass. And we had still owned our house on the east side of Detroit. So that's how I was able to do that. Okay. And what was that experience like? What do you remember? Oh, it was amazing. Like when I got there, I had been around the most kids I've ever seen in mm -hmm. one place because it was huge. Um, I remember Mr. Cohen telling everybody to matriculate to the auditorium. Mm -hmm. I, I immediately felt comfortable being around my own people. But while I was there, I learned the most about diversity. Hmm. Why do you say that? Because on the news and the society, we're portrayed as one um, static. Yes, static. I was going to say, you know, homogeneous people, mm -hmm. but we're not that at all. And at cast really opened my eyes to that. So you had. You know, children whose parents wanted something better for them like mine. Then you had, you know, very wealthy children. Mm -hmm. um, you had your nerdy children. You had your cool kids. You had your in-betweeners. You know, um, you had your J. Rotsy black, uh, brats, you know, um, or junior ROTC kids mm -hmm. or students, which I ended up being in junior ROTC. Yeah, because I was going to say, what is J. Rotsy? And then I was like, okay, you were in that ROTC. Group. I, oh, call, okay. I don't okay. know if I think it's ROTC, but I, I joke and call it ROTC sometimes. Yeah, I'm sitting up here like, what is that? Um, okay. Essentially, that means I picked I wanted to play the harp because I didn't want to do gym because mm -hmm. I wasn't as athletic. Uh since I stopped cheerleading or whatever in eighth grade. And I didn't get that. And mm -hmm. they told me I could do junior ROTC. And I didn't want to do junior ROTC, but it was a way for me to avoid, I think, like health class or something. Okay. So I said, okay, no problem. Um, and it was great. Like At one point in time, I really actually wanted to go to the Marines. But later on down the line, my family talked me out of that. But. Mm -hmm. I, I did learn um, how to shoot at that point in time, like, let's say, um, a Daisy Air Rifle. Mm -hmm. I went to a summer camp. That was fun. Um, it just taught me a lot about integrity, core values. Okay. And who, strength. Who were some of the teachers that stood out there at CAS? Oh, man. Mr. O'Leary. Mm -hmm. I love Mr. O'Leary. Coach White. Mr. O'Leary taught history. Coach White at one point taught history. Miss Chillis, she mm -hmm. was one of my science teachers. And I actually had to fight my counselor to get into her class. Because mm -hmm. there was another teacher, I won't drop his name, but wasn't mm -hmm. nobody doing no work in his class. Mm -hmm. And I, I was taking my high school education very seriously. As a matter of fact, when I got there, I used to get into it with other students because I'm, I would, you know, I came from an all private school environment. So I, I taught myself maybe how to, curse or swear because that was my way of fitting in 
-hmm. but it was also my way of taking control of the class if they were being too rowdy because I was there to learn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So you were you were checking students instead of the teacher checking students. Yeah, because my thing is now you cut into my time, my prime time. And I'm not here for play play. It's I'm like, here because uh, I have a next level I need to get to. It's a collection of Detroit's different teachers watching, applauding <laughs> right now you, while you're saying that. Yes, but I also had a smart mouth. And so something happened when I came from Catholic school and went to public school mm-hmm. and we didn't get a grade for conduct. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I can just stand on my you know, mental and my morals. I don't mm-hmm. have to like worry about the teacher not liking me because I'm too mouthy. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is great. <laughs> okay. All right. And also friends, do you still have a lot of your friends from CAS now and associate with them? Like how has CAS as it being such a strong institution in the Detroit area impacted just moving forward being around? I do have some really close, solid friends from CAS. Mm-hmm. I also have, a, and I'll use the word friend broadly, because I, I think I'm just a generally a person that does use the word broadly. Um, I have some associates and I have some friends who I did go to CAS with. And for me, I don't, the, I can go into spells where I don't necessarily talk to people mm-hmm. for a long time. But if you call me and say you need something, I pretty much got you if you never did me wrong. Okay. So. All right. Now that's Cass after Cass. Where are you at in your journey? University of Michigan. U of M. Okay. Yes. So the uh, from uh, uh, a static, well-known institution in the city of Detroit to a well-known static institution in the nation. Uh, why blue? Well, shout out to Mr. Tyrone Winfrey. Mm-hmm. He came and he recruited me to go to Michigan. And Tyrone Cass. Winfrey, let's say this. Tyrone Winfrey has been recruiting so many DPS students to go to U of M for a long time. Let's just say him and his wife, Janice mm-hmm. Winfrey, are amazing people in the community. And I'm so thankful I got a chance to interact with both of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And what was U of M like? U of M was a whole different world. It wasn't too different because I had been to private schools and I had been to I had been around a, a majority Caucasian environment for a long time in my life. Um, I went to Bridge, so I, I went to a kind of a building program where they want to test you out in the summer to see how you'll you'll manage before you get into you know let's say general population. Mm-hmm. And U of M was wonderful, but it was different in a way that I knew that black people were not one monolith in high school, but it was some, at at some points it was harder to bond with um, black people the way I had bonded with black people at U of M versus cast tech, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So there's already not a, but a handful of us, I'll say. Okay. And in classes or different environments, I might seek out somebody that looks like me, but they might be completely different than me, which is not so foreign, but the the lack or the sense of community I felt was foreign. Hmm. Now there was a black community and they it, it operated as such, but there were other black people who I felt, I don't wanna say they were outsiders, but they weren't as welcoming. Okay, now when you say they were out, there were some outsiders and not as welcoming, um, there, what were the classes you were taking? Uh, what courses and, and what was that? And how did the studying affect 
who you were engaging with? Well, I would say I found most of the people that I was going to engage with in a friendship, not in my classes. So I was oftentimes one of the only African-Americans in some of my classes. So I studied, when I ended up finding my niche, I was studying political science and Arabic. So in Arabic, it was like, me and let's say two other African-American children, but they weren't necessarily, or people, but they weren't, they were African-American and I'm not taking that away from them, but they also had ties to Arab culture. Mm -hmm. So one was Eritrean, amazing, wonderful young lady I went to college with. She's doing exceptionally well. I think she's an entertainment lawyer now. And what, what's, uh, and what years was this? This was from I went to I went to U of M from 2001 when I graduated mm -hmm. from CAS to 2005. So this was during the Eritrean Civil War. This was like in the heat of that. It was. And this was also at the start. I remember I was in my dorm room at the beginning of 9-11. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of tensions um, and also with the Jennifer Gratzky case. So there were a lot of tensions directed towards black people and then Middle Eastern people as well. Now, um what led you to study Arabic? Because definitely it's one of those things where like black kids studying Arabic. What's what's the? Well, my uncle, who is like my dad, his name is Jonathan Booth. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Uncle John. I love him. Um, my uncle kept me engaged in my summer times in different activities. And one of the things that he kept me engaged in was when I was 12 years old, he sent me to military camp. Hmm. Which is one of the other reasons why junior ROTC probably, Roxy, as you say. Exactly. And probably fit in with something that wasn't so foreign to me. So he sent me to Culver Military Camp. It's, I think it's kind of near like Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And um, very elite class of people went there. He paid a lot of good money for me to go to that summer camp. I tried to go for boarding school for high school, but my mom put a, a stop to that because, you know, I'm my mom's only baby. So she was like, she wasn't feeling mm -hmm. that. Um, but it was an amazing school. I think when I was there, the at the current at that time, the CEO of Coca-Cola's son may have went there or something like that. So it, it had a lot of powerful connections and I wanted to be there. I took like some SAT prep classes. Um, so, so yeah, Culver, Indiana. And I'm sorry, where did I get off track? The Arabic. Why, the why Arabic. Arabic. I met these cool Jordanian girls that became my friends in summer camp. Mm. And they taught me how to write my name in Arabic. But the Arab roots kind of stem further back because my dad was at the time a nation mm. um, of Islam convert after mm. Vietnam. Hmm. So he met my mom. That's how I got my name, Amel. And mm. it's not supposed to have an E on the end, but it means hope in Arabic. Okay, so some of this is like uh, 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 the curiosity. Absolutely. So Wanting to get closer mm -hmm. to my dad's understanding of his religion, which was Islam, and wanting to learn more about languages in general. Now, um, and not just with a class, it actually became like a part of your major, like many classes. Where did it transition from like a class, like, okay, this is an elective, to like, we'll take some more of these classes? Well, I started off with Spanish and I felt dyslexic in Spanish because it okay. was like once I learned the Spanish word, I couldn't go back to English. Mm -hmm. I had trouble. So the other draw was it's a brand new alphabet. It's a brand new system. I get to start over as, a, as an adult with a new language. Mm -hmm. And so that was the draw. And it became many classes because at that time, too, I thought I wanted to be in the federal government. I wanted to, you know, 
to be honest, yeah, I wanted to work for the FBI or CIA. I wanted to travel mm. abroad and, you know, At the really time, be a spy. You been like on some like born supremacy, uh, Colombiana type. That was the goal. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it didn't pan out that way, but some of it later on ended up be being lazy or just really shifting and not wanting those same goals. Okay. Now, uh, in this path, where does law come into play? Well, what I love about law is it touches every facet of life. And I think mm -hmm. I understood that in undergrad, law school was always an, in undergrad a goal, mm -hmm. but I wasn't necessarily going to go to it immediately. Um, but because I thought I wanted to try my hand at like maybe the State Department or one of the government agencies, agencies. first. But interviewing was very difficult. So my Arabic was decent, but not good enough to get into the National Security Agency because I did interview with them. Mm -hmm. I also interviewed with the CIA. And at 24, I cried when I got a thin envelope instead of the big envelope. And then later in my 30s, like early 30s, um, I took the FBI exam and I passed the written portion, but I got too lazy and I never did the physical fitness portion. Okay. Now, um, within this, did you, have you ever met an agent? Did you know an agent? Um, no. Okay. I just saw just the from lifestyle. what you interpreted from, uh, from pop culture, from pop culture. And then when I would go to these interviews, I would see like-minded people and I knew that agents or people who work for the state department, they had access to so many resources. Like they'd have some of the best healthcare, they'd have mm -hmm. some of the best pensions. At least that's what older people tell you about certain jobs or career mm -hmm. paths. I also learned, but that wasn't until law school, I learned that this, uh, the secret, secret service actually handles money crimes. And that was of interest to me. Mm -hmm. um, as well as I just knew like, you know, they tell you at the interviews, your kids can go to school with the diplomats kids. Yeah. And so I found that a way to like travel, experience language, which are all things that I learned that I loved at U of M mm -hmm. and to start a valuable career. All right. Now, as this is happening, also, you shift off into the interest of law. Attorneys. Did you grow up with any attorneys? Did you know any attorneys? I did. I knew many, but um, <laughs> I knew many attorneys okay. growing up. And as a matter of fact, my mom, who is my Don King, she advocated at a small law firm in Pontiac, a very prominent law firm, Hatchet to Walton Hatchet. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Elbert and William Hatchet were both civil rights attorneys, and mm -hmm. they covered some amazing cases in the 60s and 70s and 80s as well. And they're an integral part of the community in Pontiac. And so she asked that I could get a co-op job with them yeah. in high school. And so I was already building myself as an a future attorney in high school. Okay. And you you ended up venturing back into that space as time went on. When did I you did. end up uh, taking your LSAT as even taking the, the, I've heard from some attorneys, taking the test to get into law school may be tougher than taking the test after you finish law school. You know? you know, I'd say you might be right because with the bar, which is the test to, you know, to actually get your license, they give you the materials and if you got enough money and you can pay for the class and treat it like a job, if you can carve out enough money and time and dedication, you can get there. But with the LSAT, I mean, they're testing abstract concepts and a lot of those concepts they found to be biased. So they're actually changing the LSAT now and the mm -hmm. logic game portions. I think there was a young lady who was blind who sued 
mm-hmm. um, and pointed out some of the inherent bias. But yeah, that, that process was tough. But I had a I had an uncle who was um, dedicated to helping me finance the career that I wanted to in the lifestyle that I, I so wanted to be in uh, professionally. So as long as I had a professional goal, I had to help. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was just me running up a credit card and had some debt, I ain't had no help. I had to figure that one out. So he was not buying red bottoms and Prada. Absolutely not. But but definitely <laughs> I can I can help a, a semester. Absolutely. And and I'm thankful to him and his wife, my Aunt Brenda, mm-hmm. who did that for me. Okay. And about when do you make the commitment to law school? This was after I go to grad school and I study urban planning. So Okay, so we skip skip a step. We did skip a step, but that's okay. All right. Law school, well, grad school, urban planning, um, political science. I guess this definitely ties into working in a civic capacity for maybe a local government, possibly a state government, maybe a federal government. Uh, Was that the thought process? It was. And when I went into urban planning, one of my first jobs out of U of M, as I was waiting on all the federal jobs to unfold, was working at Quicken Loans. Mm. After Quicken Loans, I worked at Citibank and did mortgage processing. From there, somebody, it was one of my clients on the phone at Quicken who said, have you ever heard of the study of urban planning? Because I was telling them how frustrated I was that I wasn't able to help a lot of people get mortgages because maybe they didn't have the wherewithal to keep good credit or to know how it was going to impact them later. And I have to deny them. And this lady said, have you ever heard about urban planning? And that really opened up my eyes. And I did a whole grad school journey based on that one client conversation. What school? I went to Wayne State. Okay, so you came back home locally and did it. I absolutely did. I'm still 10 pages, though, away from my actual master's Mm -hmm. because I need to finish my master's essay. Mm -hmm. So that's still forthcoming. But okay, now and then that led into law school soon after, I'm guessing. So in urban planning, did you did you work in urban planning? Uh, I did. I did. And I have to thank a few people before I even tell you about this process. One would be Dr. Robin Boyle. He -hmm. was my chair um, at Wayne State, and he helped me get a job at Wayne County Land Bank. And there I have to thank Darnella Williams, Darnella D. Williams, as well as Tanisha Yancey Mm -hmm. and even Turkia Mullen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at the Land Bank, what were you doing? I started off as an intern just doing like pictures of abandoned homes and doing lead-based paint questionnaires that developed into me doing more paperwork, working with the county assessor, doing property transfer uh, affidavits, going to research deeds, to managing the sale of the uh, mortgage foreclose process or tax foreclose process in a program modeled off of Mike Duggan's program called Project Saved. So mm-hmm. Land Bank did Project Saved too. And the whole basis of the program was to give people a tax incentive to bring a a failing property back into a productive use. Yeah. Now, our land bank is definitely one of the most um, scrutinized and, and I would say controversial almost topics being looked at and discussed when we think of Detroit politics as just the assessment 
of properties uh, for taxpayers in the city of Detroit versus so many abatements and considerations given to billionaires to conduct business. Um, did you see that? Did that interface, did, did, you know, uh, working in that in that space, did you like how much face to face did you even see a lot of those challenges? Because that's always been one of the key discussions here in the city of Detroit. So I would say I start because I started at the intern level, I started at the ground level. Mm -hmm. In a way, I saw more maybe than someone at a higher level because people I was unassuming. Mm -hmm. So people have conversations with you or they'll say things in your presence because they don't see you to be of any threat um, or any value, but that can work to your advantage. And I worked that to my advantage. So one of the things I did know is um, when we were working there at that time, there was a good tax incentive to bring brownfields back into a reproductive use as well as any commercial properties. But in my opinion, and I didn't work for the city land bank and they're separate. Yeah, the city and the, and the county. Yes. Even and at the time, they've kind of merged. Yes. And when I was working for them, this was before the land bank was its own entity before it was EDGE, which was the economic development group, I guess, um, under under the county's portion. So things have changed. But when I was working there, I didn't see it that way only because I saw opportunities for both the wealthy side and commercial mm -hmm. development but as well as the small nonprofit that wanted to get a home and make it a group home. Okay. And I, and as well as, you know, another nonprofit who just wanted to have a community garden or, mm -hmm. you know, have children in the home, you know, okay. and, and bring it into a productive use. So I, I may have had, you know, I don't know, I don't know, bigger ambitions to see, to not see that. Yeah. Um, or just maybe, I had an implicit bias being that I worked for these people and I yeah. saw them do wonderful things. Okay. Uh, did you buy some property while working there? I did not. Okay. I saw the changes coming. I even saw the gentrification, but at the time I just didn't have my bread up and I really didn't have the vision as clearly as I see it now. Okay. Now, uh, from there, you, Wendy, are you going to law school? Do you start law school while working there? I do. Um, I decide that I wanted to be an appointee, but I couldn't be made an appointee for some reason. Somebody elected not to. Mm -hmm. So instead of staying there and working part time and going to UAD Mercy, which I was accepted into, which would have been a wonderful opportunity, I decided to abandon all of Detroit because, you know, I was in my 20s. I was social. Yeah. I was kind of doing my thing, in my opinion. And I didn't feel as though I was going to be able to focus in on the journey which was law school completely being at home. Okay. So where do you go to law school? I go to <laughs> Valparaiso, okay. Indiana for law school. And as a matter of fact, the week that I got there, I go to the chapel and I start crying like, what did I do? Because hmm. I missed everybody. I missed my family. I missed mm -hmm. my friends. I missed my social life. But yeah. I was ready for a new journey. Yeah. Now, I know you're honed in there because it's like, what can you do in Valparaiso? But in that experience, what law are you studying um, and how did it prepare you? At Valparaiso, you're taking like a general course in, mm -hmm. in the study of law. So first year, you don't even get to elect anything. Mm -hmm. They carve out your classes for you. 
And I think it's the sum total of like six subjects. So from the best of my recollection, I remember having civil procedure, which teaches you about, you know, the federal practice of court. Mm -hmm. I had constitutional law. I had legal writing, and that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Then you have evidence, property, and contracts. And they break mm -hmm. that. That's your whole year. Wow. And legal writing is is filtered into both of those semesters. Kind of filtered in all of those. Absolutely. Because legal, legal writing is, is more like legal reading. Like, what did this say? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it taught me there, too, that legal writing is more succinct. It's not even the same as like a legislative bill that somebody would pass or a law that's being passed. Mm -mm. It's about winning the argument. You got that right. Sophistry, as they call it. Absolutely. You know, um, and were you fascinated by this? Were you intrigued? Did it, did it, you know, uh, inspire you? Were you opening up your law books like, wow. Some cases or some parts, yes. So civil procedure. I got into the details of the cases. Like mm -hmm. I can still name you like Panoyer v. Neff, which is like mm -hmm. a basic jurisdiction. There's a Burger King case. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a Conley v. Gibson that gives you something about the um, the basis of the, the accident or the law must stem from the nucleus of fact, the same nucleus mm -hmm. of fact. So I loved civil procedure. It was very fun. Civil procedure as well as contracts. I thought that I would really enjoy property, but I didn't enjoy property as much as I did contracts and civil procedure. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a lot into it. Um, and people take, I think, um, shout out Stephanie Hammonds, my attorney that I've been working with for years, but I think people do not know the value of an attorney until they need an attorney, which actually is make makes attorneys more valuable. Because by the time the person's getting on the phone saying, I think I may need an attorney. That means, yes. You absolutely. They really need an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, at business school, it's weird. It's, it's like we're practicing and learning a lot of these theories. But we don't learn the business side of it. And I think law school is similar. It's, it's a whole business side of law that isn't taught in school. Facts. So... After law school, where are you at and how do you start picking up the business side of law? After law school, to be honest, I came out in 2012. I sat for the Illinois bar, which I passed on the first time. I'm very thankful. But that was, sure. of course, to the help and credit of my aunt and uncle who let me live in Evanston, who gave me a stipend and mm -hmm. who let me treat the bar exam like a job. That's what's up. Yes. Um, so I come out of the bar exam. I have like a, my own version of a breakdown. Hmm. I was living in Chicago. I walked to my homegirl's house. Shout out to Aaron Harris, who used to be Aaron Hendricks. So I just got to shout her out because okay. she really uh, was a, a, a viable mentor and friend to me in a time of need, especially when I was studying for the bar exam. Mm -hmm. And I just needed a place to escape my family environment or whatever yeah. I was going through, the different stresses. And um, during that time, the business side. So I came out of law school really not even practicing. Hmm. So I came out of law school kind of in a, a, a bubble market, you know, a, a plethora of attorneys. Yeah. I also had not taken the Michigan bar where I got my connections and my juice. Mm -hmm. So I moved back home. Um, I got a good girlfriend. Um, her name is Candace Durham, she actually uh, looked out for me, got me a job at a personal injury firm. 
but that didn't end up working out because um, the attorney there, who was a wonderful attorney, very smart man, he was utilizing me to do medical records, but I wanted to do the legal writing. And mm -hmm. so I was just looking to move out of that situation because I'm like, hey, let me just write your briefs. Yeah. You know, I know I can't practice yet. I didn't take the Michigan bar yet. But if you just let me put my pen to paper mm -hmm. and do my research, these things will be impeccable. I'm mm -hmm. trying to tell you. But he ended up making me, um, not making me, but allowing me to do uh, medical collections and learning about um, Medicaid and Medicare as the payers of last resort. Mm -hmm. And from there, I became a Medicare, no, Medicaid fraud investigator hmm. in the state of, with the state of Michigan in Lansing. Okay. So it's, it's almost these opportunities that start presenting themselves as you zero in on a niche. And a lot of great attorneys do have niches where like they'll specialize in certain things and usually have like a network of other attorneys they'll call for like, okay, I don't necessarily do that but I can do that. And that's where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. So um, the progression of being a Medicaid and then a Medicare fraud investigator, as well as doing Medicaid project management as an attorney, mm -hmm. teaching states how to prosecute uh, different providers for overpayment claims on these you know, federal benefits, brought me to eventually practicing law in the disability realm. Hmm. But it took, I haven't been practicing officially um, meaning that that's what I'm doing day in, day out since 2017. So I'm only three years in. Now, what led for you to have an interest in this? What 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 was the like, I can work in this space and I'm motivated to work in this space? Professor Carter, there was an intersection um, where I took a white collar crime class, I think, or no, it was a criminal forensics class. But really, the criminal forensics class dealt a lot with white collar crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, Derek Carter was a wonderful professor. At first, we bumped heads, but then we became really, really good friends. He's still an ally and a mentor of mine. And in his class, I said, I know the market is tough, but I'm going to backdoor my way into the law. Um, and specifically at that point in time, white collar crime or fraud and healthcare law. Mm. And that's how I did it as an investigator. But then I ended up getting an opportunity to become a disability attorney. And I finally had hit my stride. It, mm. it finally made sense why maybe I felt as though the good Lord had allowed me to be held back for a while mm. because I just had a natural knack for making people feel comfortable for being a good listener for, you know, being able to, to navigate a difficult space when somebody was dealing with a disability. So it's almost like some Mr. Miyagi, like you, all your other skill sets in life culminated around the space you're working now. Um, what is it you think that makes it for um, people to need your services? Um, why are people being taken advantage of, you feel? I feel people are being taken advantage of because unfortunately, especially in a climate like this, but even before this, people have a lot of implicit bias and they have politicized um, some social security disability benefits. In what ways? In what ways is I see that 
certain judges will treat certain people of a particular way, or you have maybe equal opportunity haters who are judges who just don't feel people should really have this benefit despite paying into the system to have this benefit. So like some of your clients, like uh, just give an example of some of the people that would reach out for your services. So in my in my field um, specifically, it could be somebody, let's say, who had a car accident and they're unable to return to work. Mm -hmm. Or it could be somebody, let's say, that was working. They had a fall at the job or maybe not even at the job. They had a fall at home and now they've got degenerative disc disease of the lumbar and cervical spine or you know, they've been working hard their whole life and now they can't use their hands. A a, a plethora of medical impairments could exist, Mm -hmm. but somebody who's no longer able to work and they're not able to work. They haven't been able to work for let's say a year or two. And they now need to collect uh, the money that they've so, so rightfully paid into the system um, to help them because now they're disabled and they're no longer able to work. Hmm. And, and how common is this? It's very common, especially between the ages of, let's say, 50 and 60. Mm. You know, you've got a lot of people. Up, so let me say this. A part of my job is counseling people and letting them know it's not their fault that they became disabled mm-hmm. and that they should not feel bad about applying for this benefit because we live in this really kind of false sense of society that tells us we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we need to work our hands to the bone. Well, let Mm. me tell you, you can work your hands to the bone if you want to, but when your hands are at its bone, the company is going to toss you and they're not going to look out for your best interests. And, uh, I I would say like, as you say, this is common. I think also just the stigma around what disability is. It's almost using the term for some people, it's like, I don't want to accept that. And even now with a lot of um, mental health being recognized in that space too. I'll be honest, it's something that people don't want to accept. Um, Mm. There have been times where I've could have applied for federal jobs under a category of disability, but I refused to do it. And I'd have friends who worked in the federal sector and say, you know, all you got to do is say this. And it could it was really legitimate mm-hmm. what they were asking me to say. But I'm like, I don't want it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, a refusal to accept it. And it's nothing mental. But um, throughout the years, because I've been working at a law firm since I was 15, I have carpal tunnel syndrome now in my right hand. But mm-hmm. luckily, it's not something that's overly exacerbated. But I I now understand the stigma around disability. And you do get treated differently. Hmm. Hmm. So working in a federal environment, I worked with um, like a hand brace Hmm. due to the carpal tunnel. And all of a sudden now you've got attention of chief judges and different supervisors worried about what your performance level will be just because they see you're struggling with a disability and they they don't want you there. Wow. Wow. That's deep. So uh, where do you see things going in your practice as it expands and people that you're going to reach out and help? Well, right now I focus on disability, but I also do trademarks because it's Mm -hmm. federal, because I am licensed in in, in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a tongue twister, actually, licensed in Illinois. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm focusing on that practice, but I'm also working with a new mentor out of Florida who's teaching me how to do Americans with Disability Act cases, Okay, where I'll be filing suits in the state of Illinois. Hmm. 
Okay. Okay. All of that sounds promising. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, reach out. How do they do that? They can look at my website. It's www.knoxlawpllc.com. All okay. one word, no no initials. And that's, again, knoxlawpllc.com. They can also contact me at my cell phone, which is 248-719-1001. And I can be reached by email, which is a mail dot nox dot esq at gmail.com okay all right now uh we get we get closer to the close uh classic detroit is different questions what was your very first car and year making model and what year did you get it this is a shame because my mom worked at ford motor company but mm -hmm. my first car was a honda civic okay and i got it when i was in high school okay what year i'm trying to remember I think I got the car in 2000. It was a brand new 2000. So I had a car okay. junior year before senior year. Wow. Brand new car. Ain't that something? All right. And where was the first place you went when you got it? Probably Belle Isle on a senior skip day. There we go. <laughs> that, that's the way to roll. That is the way to roll. All right. Um, and then I guess the other tie if you could uh, play three songs at the detroit fireworks jefferson and what were what three songs are you playing hello detroit okay because we would wake up in the morning and listen to that on the radio okay um summer madness okay Ray airs i'm with that and you're gonna laugh, but right now I'm really digging uh, both uh, Payroll Giovanni as okay. well as Babyface Ray. All right. And of course, Big Sean. So it will probably be um, My Last by Big Sean. There we go. Lord knows, Lord knows. I'm with it and you keeping the CT vibe going. For sure. And, and last question. Uh, if you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Probably Don Barden. Okay, interesting. That's an interesting selection. I just, I mean, I don't know Don Barden, but I had the pleasure of meeting his wife before she passed. Uh, Rest in peace, Bella Marshall. Yes, love Bella Marshall. I mm -hmm. mean, when I talk about the essence of a lady, like the example of a lady, mm -hmm. that was Bella. And I got a chance to work with her at Wayne County. So I would say just based on, you know, him being the first owner, of uh, African-American owner of a cable station, he got that. Okay. That's what's up. And casinos down there in Indiana. You could have shook some dice <laughs> down there. Got some money out of Don Bar. So that works. That works. Attorney Knox, thank you so much for your Detroit is Different interview. Thank you for having me. It's All good right. to see you. Peace, peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.